Well, good morning and welcome, and thank you, uh, Tobin and Tammy and David, and for the youth. Uh, I was thinking as I was watching that video, uh, I can remember when Krista and Elise were born. That's how old I am and how long I've been here, and, uh, but it's a great privilege to see them grow up and uh, become young adults and uh, young ladies and the other uh, youth there. It was great to, to hear their testimonies, and so I'm very thankful for that. In fact, I meant to pray for the youth group as I prayed. Let me pray for them. Heavenly Father, thank you for Grace Point Youth and for the lives that are touched through that ministry. I pray for Tammy and Tobin and David as they lead that, and we pray for them for uh, preparation time and the ability just to communicate clearly. We thank you for the youth. We pray for their spiritual growth, their unity, and a great joy for the cause of Christ. And thank you that you're with them. Thank you for this ministry. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. So thank you again for that great, great uh, report to us that we can be praying for you. Well, how many of you have the Peter Pan syndrome? The Peter Pan syndrome. I'm not talking about the flying part. I I would like the flying part, you know, without an airplane, just fly around. But uh, the Peter Pan syndrome is actually kind of a tragic syndrome. It's been identified by medical science, and I think that's the pop name for this problem, but many people have fears of growing up, fears of growing to maturity. It's a bizarre and tragic exception, and it's known as geroscopia, or the fear of growing up. In uh, case reports in psychiatry, uh, a publication, they record about a 14-year-old boy who was trying very hard not to grow up. And the two authors writes that, uh, quote, he does not eat much because according to his own research, food contains nutrients needed for physical development. In addition, he adopts a stooped posture to hide his height, and he distorts his voice using lower volume and a higher pitch than usual. If people tell him that he is taller or older, he becomes extremely upset and cries. Uh, The doctors go on to report that after treatment, the boy has improved somewhat, but they added the patient continues to express a fear of commitment and responsibilities that he feels will be required of him in adult life. And so that is a a, a malady that is called the Peter Pan syndrome. But it seems sometimes that Christians have that Peter Pan syndrome, a fear of growing up, of maturing of uh, maybe getting older in Christ in that sense. And they have an irrational fear. And even some churches have that irrational fear. And they blame it on tradition or many other things. But as we come to our passage today in Ephesians chapter 4, we continue our study through this great letter of the Apostle Paul, written from a prison in Rome to the church at Ephesus over on Asia Minor, about a thousand miles to the east. And it uh, was probably uh, distributed among the other churches in what is now present-day Turkey. And it comes to us today in the Word of God. And so we've come to the book of Ephesians. And remember the broad uh, outline of Ephesians. The first three chapters talk about our position in Christ or our wealth, our riches, our spiritual riches in Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 talk about our practice or our decision to live out the doctrine that Paul has taught us in chapters 1 through 3. So it's basically our calling. It leads to our conduct. And now in chapter 4, we are in the midst of our conduct. 
In uh, the book of Ephesians, the, the word body or body of, body of Christ is used once in our passage today, but the Apostle Paul uses that. If you do a word search of body in his letters in the New Testament, you'll see that he refers to the church often as a body. And, of course, the most famous passage is 1 Corinthians 12, where he compares and uses the human body as a metaphor for the church which is very apt. Earlier in our study in Ephesians, in chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, he used an architectural or a building metaphor. In chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, he writes, We have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Of course, the overarching principle here is the Apostle Paul is talking about this new condition called the church, these two races of Jewish believers, Gentile believers being brought together, which was unheard of in the first century. We may not have a good uh, grasp of the difficulties that that created, and yet in Scripture we see that God, his purpose is that this thing called the church, the body of Christ, is being formed, and it's a new race of people, if you will, and uh, that is the wonder of the church. Remember in the Old Testament, Israel was a nation. It was national. It was also ethnic, and that was the Old Testament. They were to stand as a light on the hill, basically, to the pagan nations around them to demonstrate and to testify of God's goodness that this one God, Jehovah, Yahweh, was the one true God. In the New Testament, that changes. The church is multi-ethnic. It is transnational. It is everywhere in the world. Every ethnic group, every tongue, tribe, and nation is part of this church, and we are the dwelling place of God. In fact, when you think of the metaphor, the body of Christ, or the body is what we're called, we can think that through a little bit. When Jesus Christ ministered on the earth, walked uh, the roads of Israel, he was in a physical body, and he was uh, in that place, and he couldn't be everywhere at once because he was in a physical body. But when he was crucified, buried, rose again on the third day, appeared to many, and then ascended into heaven, his body, physical body, left the earth. But in Acts chapter 2, the church was established called the body of Christ. We are the hands, the feet of Jesus Christ. And so it's a very apt metaphor that is used here. And so in chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, the portion we'll uh, complete today, he's picking up after verse 7. Remember, if you were with us last week, in verse 7, he talks about that grace was given according to Christ's gift, and he emphasizes this issue of gift. And then he does a parenthetical statement from verses 9 through 10, and he returns to this idea of gifts in verse 11. And this is Christ's strategy for his body, the church. This is the how of what he is doing. He has tools for the strategy, and the tools are in gifted individuals. Look again at verse 11. It says, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So these five gifted individuals are given. Now, a definition of a spiritual gift, because we find other central passages on spiritual gifts in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and then here. But these are the emphasis is on the individuals that God has established. These are the strategy or the how he's going to carry out ministry in the body of Christ. 
A definition of spiritual gifts is that it's a divine enablement of a special ability for service upon a member of the body of Christ. So the source is God, the purpose is service, and every believer has a spiritual gift or gifts. And so if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may not know the identity of your spiritual gift, but you have been given a divine enablement of special ability for the purpose of serving the body of Christ. Everybody who's a believer in Christ receives those according to Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. And here he's talking about in gifted individuals. These are the tools of God's strategy, if you will. And the apostles, if you were with us last week, this will be kind of a review for you because we looked at verse 11 briefly. But to set the contact, he says he sent apostles. This is one sent as an authoritative delegate. If you looked in a Greek lexicon, you would find a definition such as that. He's an ambassador who bears a message who represents the one who sent him. The technical usage of apostles, which is what he's referring to here, are the 12... Uh, Remember, Judas left, betrayed Christ, and Matthias in Acts chapter 1 replaces Judas of the 12, and then Paul was added later. And they were commissioned to the office of apostle. This is a technical designation. But apostle is also used of others that were recognized as apostles, such as James, Barnabas, Andronicus, Junius, Silas, and Timothy probably, and Apollos. Uh, And this later group of these other people, these other individuals, was probably the gift of apostleship, this delegation, but not the office as the 12 plus Paul had. And what are the qualifications for the technical apostle here? Uh, They had to see the Lord and eyewitness the resurrected Jesus, which Paul did after his conversion on the uh, road to Damascus. Uh, They were then given the power of a miracle worker. And, they, and that's found in Acts 5 and Hebrews 2. They were chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit, Matthew 10, Acts chapter 1. So very briefly, the apostles, and these were the technical apostles that we think of. And next it says they were, church, Christ gave the church prophets, these individuals with this gift of proclamation, interpreting of divine revelation to speak forth the word of God and to, when the word of God was not complete to communicate what God was communicating. New Testament prophets is what is referred to here and they were gifts to the church to provide edification, exhortation and comfort, uh, 1 Corinthians 14 and they probably revealed God's will to the church when the bi- biblical canon, when the Bible was not complete. Remember John wrote Revelation and the Gospel of John in the 90s. And so the biblical canon wasn't complete here in 60 AD and the founding of the church. And these two gifts are foundational gifts. Remember early on in our study in chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the church was founded on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone to use that building metaphor or architectural metaphor. Now, you don't keep rebuilding the foundation. Anybody who's in the construction trades knows that you build the foundation once, and you don't go back and you don't rebuild it. The foundation of this building was built back, Bill, when? In the 50s? Something like that. And we don't go back and rebuild the foundation of a building. Once it's laid, it's laid. So the apostles and prophets, once the word of God was complete, there was no longer a need for apostles and prophets, and those gifts and gifted individuals died out 
with the last of the New Testament apostles and prophets. Then there's three more gifts, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Evangelist is a, is a, 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 a word speaking of the good news. Uh, the evangel was the good news. They were engaged in spreading the gospel and training others in how to share their faith. And so these are evangelists and something like a modern-day missionary, if you think of this. Pastors and teachers, shepherding and instructing in God's ways. And so God's strategy for his body is gifted individuals. It doesn't mean that the individuals have anything to offer other than what God is supernaturally doing before them. I stand before you as a prime example. I've told you oftentimes before, when I was a logger in Montana, I was perfectly happy never to talk to anybody. And it, I, I would break out in a sweat if I even had to help with the offering in our local church. It scared me so much. And uh, God has been enabled me to be here to communicate his truth. He's uh, equipped me with that. And uh, so I'm just one example. Uh, these are the tools, the strategy of individuals that God has provided for the church. And then he has a growth plan in verses 12 through 16 the growth plan for his church. And that's the what question. And this is really the project of the strategy. On in verse 12, in the first part of verse 12, he tells us <clears throat> what the reason for these ungifted individuals, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers, it says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Equipping of the saints. Uh, that word equipping in, uh, in the Greek language refers to two different aspects of this. It talks about repairing, repairing God's people for work of ministry. It's a fishing term that's used in Matthew 4 and Mark 1 of mending the nets, the fishing nets. It's talking about mending things, and so that's a picture. It's also used in Galatians 6.1 of restoring a brother to fellowship. Also, it's a medical term in classical Greek writing. It's a medical term, which means setting of broken bones. And so there's an aspect where every one of us needs to be repaired because we are broken individuals because of sin and because of total depravity before we became believers in Christ. So it's to repair people in equipping them through the word of God to repair them. But it also means to prepare people for work of service, equipping them. It's a nautical term we see in Hebrews chapter 10, 5, outfitting a ship for a voyage. In other words, getting ready, and that's referring there in Hebrews, the body of Christ, his literal body was being outfitted, prepared for works of service. Uh, <clears throat> you know, when I think of uh, the, the task of pastors and teachers and evangelists, and often people expect pastors to feed sheep the same way you feed lambs. And that's the worst thing you can do. Grown sheep need to be shown the pasture for themselves. You know, obviously, when we're brand new Christians, we need to be bottle fed. But when we get older and more mature and we grow in our faith, uh, we need to understand where the food lies. You know, primarily my job and the job of the elders is not to manipulate you into acting religiously. It's not to manipulate, manipulate you into acting religiously, but to help you think Christianly. And there's a gigantic difference between there. And there's a desperate need in the church in America and around the world that Christians think Christianly. Too many churches are involved in trying to make you behave, you know, make us all behave somehow. And actually, if we think Christianly, uh, that changes. 
Uh, so we tend to look at the pastoral model as a CEO of an organization rather than someone who equips the saints for the work of ministry. And notice the product of the strategy in verses 12 and 13. In verse 12, the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. This whole passage is talking about growth. And when you think about growth, we desire, and most living things are supposed to be growing, aren't they? When a baby is born, we want them to grow to maturity. When plants sprout out of the ground, we want them to grow to maturity and produce fruit. And uh, so we are, the marks of maturity are these. And there are four marks of maturity we're going to see in verses 12 through 16. The first one here in verses 12 and 13 is distinctively Christ-like. Look again at verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Why? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Very uh, briefly, it means to be distinctively Christ-like. I was reading about uh, uh, George Harrison's classic guitar. Remember, George Harrison was one of the four Beatles, and uh, he once said that the first really decent guitar that he owned was a Gresh Duo Jet. The electric guitar manufactured by Gresh Guitars was known for its trebly tone. In the early 1960s, Harrison bought that guitar for $200, equivalent of U.S. $200 at the time. In 2011, after uh, George Harrison's death, Gresh Guitars announced that the company would manufacture a limited run of 60 exact replicas of George Harrison's duo jet guitar as a tribute model. And USA Today reported that the Gresh Guitars product manager says... uh, that this master craftsman recreated the guitar precisely, replicating the nicks and the dings of a half-century's use, even using a CAT scan to determine the semi-hollow guitar's body chambering style. The suggested retail price for the Tribute Duo Jet would be around $20,000, if any of you are interested. I don't know if there's any available. (laughs) But uh, that is a very expensive guitar, because it replicates a valuable original so closely. You know, in the same way, you and I find our highest value in becoming the amazing replica of someone who is worth is infinite, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul elsewhere says that he bears on his body the marks of Christ, and this idea that uh, we live for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to replicate him distinctively Christ-like. Why? For the edification of his people, the unity of his people. Towards maturity, we are to be growing in Christ. And why would we want to do that? Based upon chapters 1 through 3, the riches in Christ, the spiritual riches that are ours. The second mark of maturity is doctrinally calm in verse 14. Doctrinally calm. As a result, when we move towards Christ-likeness, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Doctrinally calm, confidence in maturity, confidence in doctrine, knowing what we believe and why we believe it. That's why the elders work so hard to develop an elder affirmation of faith, a multi-page document It's part of our Uh, constitution and bylaws 
And uh, I would encourage you to pick up a copy if you don't have a copy, read through it, ask the elders questions if you don't understand parts of it. But it is a very detailed and clear exposition of what we believe and why we believe it. And so we are doctrinally calm, distinctively Christ-like. And the third mark of maturity is developmentally committed. Look at verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, developmentally committed, being truthful. It's more than just speaking the truth. This word that's used here talks about speech and conduct. It's living out a truthful, honest life that we would grow up to Christ as the head. Years ago, Billy Joel, uh, the singer, wrote a song called Honesty. And it expressed a universal need, and the lyrics go like this. Honesty is such a lonely word. Everyone is so untrue. Honesty is hardly ever heard, and mostly what I need from you. The philosopher Pascal complained that human relations are based on mutual deception. Scott Peck has pointed out that the evil always has to do with lying. Evil always has to do with lying. These analysts do not exaggerate, both with ourselves and with others, we sometimes live by distortion. The world needs to hear the truth, but it needs to be tempered with love. And that is the unique place where you and I are leveraged in our context, in our circle of influence, is we can speak the truth, but notice it's with love and our truth are kept, when love and truth are kept together, true community comes into being. And so we are moving towards spiritual maturity. Distinctively Christ-like is a mark of growth. Doctrinally calm, knowing what you believe, why you believe it. Thirdly, developmentally committed. In other words, we live out the truth that we know. And then fourth and finally in verse 16, developed, devotedly cooperative. And in verse 16, he says, from whom the whole body, speaking of Christ, the head of the body, being fitted together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Jesus Christ is the head of this body. Without a head, bodies do not survive. Christ is our the head, our Savior, and the groom, basically, of the bride of Christ. And so we fellowship in love. Our edification is in love. And so it's telling us this progression here. As we understand the riches we have in Christ, we will live them out, and we will be distinctively Christ-like, doctrinally calm, developmentally committed, and devotedly cooperative. Notice that every joint supplies. There are gifts, spiritual gifts given to every believer in the church. And when we function within our areas of giftedness, we are like the joints of the body that contributes to the whole, and it flourishes, and each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself. How? In love, the ultimate expression of what Jesus Christ has done. I was reading about uh, synthetic diamonds. Uh, jewelers in many of the major diamond uh, markets of the country have been faced with recent challenges to their trade. Uh, there's a new synthetic substance, relatively new in the last decade or so, that has been developed that is so similar to actual diamonds that the most sophisticated experts are having difficulty identifying the real thing. But there are some clues to assist the experts in appraisal of so-called diamonds. Under a high-powered microscope, a real diamond will display clear straight lines visible within the diamond's central core. The synthetic diamonds have jagged lines that reveal that they are of much less value. 
you may need to never find out if a diamond is real. Uh, but if you're a Christian, the world may want to know if your faith is genuine. Are you growing in Christ? They want to know if somebody is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's more than the Sunday morning event. It's the every day of the week, wherever we find ourselves, whether it's in a classroom or a workplace or, or uh, in a neighborhood or in a family even, uh, that uh, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ under examination will come forth as Christ-like, as calm doctrinally, as committed to the development and cooperating with the local church and what they're doing. In fact, in the first century, there was a man named Tertullian, and uh, he laid, lived at the end of the first century, but he wrote these words. It is our care, he's writing about Christians, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Look, they say, how they love one another. Look how they are prepared to die for one another. That was his expression in the first century, and it should be ours today. I was thinking about uh, God's strategy for his body, his growth plan for the body, and that he's carrying it out. And so what does that mean to us in practical terms, in a sense? And I think uh, human transformation is always difficult because it's a slow process and it's one that's not always easily identified in our own lives, let alone in the lives of others. Uh, it involves training, not just trying. Uh, some people think they can just work up their muscles and grit their teeth and be some kind of a good Christian. But spiritual transformation is a long-term endeavor. It involves both God and us, and it's kind of like crossing the ocean. It's like a trip across the ocean. Some people try day after day to be good and to be spiritually mature, but it's like taking a rowboat across the ocean. It's exhausting and usually unsuccessful. Others have given up trying and throw themselves entirely on relying on God's grace, and they're like drifters on a raft, like drifting on a raft. They do nothing but hang on and hope that God gets them there. Uh, neither trying nor drifting is effective in bringing about spiritual transformation. A better image in that metaphor is the sailboat, really, when you think about it. When it moves at all, it's a gift of the wind. And we can't control the wind, but a good sailor discerns where the wind is blowing, adjusts the sails accordingly. Working with the Holy Spirit, Jesus even likened the Holy Spirit to the wind in John 3, means that we have to discern what the wind is doing, set our sails in the direction we need to go, and uh, train our sails to catch the breezes that God provides. That is transformation. That is God's Holy Spirit working in and through us, which he has promised to do. God's strategy, God's individuals, his gifts that he's given to the church, and then his growth plan for the church, that we would be Christ-like and loving. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for blessing us with this morning. We thank you for your word, and I pray for each one here. Pray for those of us who are believers that we would continue to be uh, growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would uh, take responsibility for our growth, that we would allow you and the wind of your Holy Spirit to blow through our lives in such a way that we would really be sensitive to what you're doing, that we would be students of your word, that we would be people of prayer, and that you would guide and lead us in all the things of life, the good times and the times that are not so good. And Lord, we recognize that you are with us and that you love us. And Lord, we pray that you'd protect us from cowardice that we shrink from new truths or the laziness that is content with half-truths. 
And Lord, from arrogance that thinks it knows all truth, God, deliver us from those things. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit indwells us. And Lord, for anyone here who does not know Jesus as their Savior, has never believed in him for everlasting life, I pray that you'd open us to the truth that they too can know they have eternal life, everlasting life in heaven by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. Thank you for this morning and for your blessings. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen. Amen.